This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. Commercial subsidiary. Of the BBC. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We um, spent some time in the Galapagos Islands. And it was an absolutely incredible place to sail through. We had sperm whales coming incredibly close to the boat and having a mother sperm whale come up on one side of the boat and her calf ending up on the other side of the boat. And my parents were slightly concerned that mother sperm whale was going to think that our boat was stopping her from getting to her calf. The boat was sort of going up and down and the sperm whale was sort of going up and down with the boat and she came within half a metre of the boat and I remember my mum telling me that they definitely, they, they put me in the life jacket and <laughs> they were slightly holding their breath. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast. The podcast that sets sail on a favourable tide to explore the wide and wonderful natural world. In hindsight, sperm whales are incredibly intelligent animals, so it's very unlikely that that sperm whale probably would have done anything to the boat. They're incredibly curious. She was probably just checking the boat out to see what this strange object was. It was fun. This week, stories of growing up, being young and foolish and free. Stories of getting older and hopefully wiser, shaping up and shipping out on your own in the big wide world. So I had, um, I guess you could say, a slightly unconventional childhood. Um, So I was born one year into my parents' seven-year sailing circumnavigation around the world. My name is Yolly. I am an assistant producer at the BBC. Um, I've just finished on Blue Planet 2, and I'm now working on another landmark for the BBC. So I think my parents had always, always wanted to travel. That was their dream. Um, And they'd always been interested in sailing. Uh, They started sailing small catamarans. That was a cheap way of travelling at that time. You know, you could sail with your home, basically, have your home with you. We sailed through the Mediterranean. I was born in Cyprus. We sailed across the Atlantic to Brazil, up to the Caribbean, then through the Panama Canal and then through the Pacific, Um, and my sister was born in Fiji. My mum is also a very adventurous person. She was pregnant when we left. Um, I don't know if that was planned, (laughs) but but yes. (laughs) During her pregnancy, she had two doctor's visits across the entire time. I can't believe that she wasn't more worried, I guess. 
She's a Compass 38, so 38 footer. A boat called Limerick Lady. You've got the galley, which is the kitchen, and then you've got the centre saloon area. Just opposite the kitchen, you then have another little cabin, which was where I would sleep. And I used to spend lots of time in there listening to my nursery rhymes and (laughs) reading my books. Luckily, I was a fairly obedient child, so they could leave me in there for long periods when it was stormy or not ideal outside. They travelled up through the Red Sea, and I think it was only at that point that it did start becoming a little bit uncomfortable for my mum, because they got stuck in uh, what they call a seven-day storm in the Red Sea, and they didn't actually have visas to stop in any of those countries so they didn't want to stop in Egypt they couldn't stop in Saudi Arabia you know my mum was seven months pregnant at that point they would sail at night time up the Red Sea and then in the daytime when they got tired they had to stop they had to sleep they couldn't anchor and that just meant that they just drifted back down the Red Sea and basically my my mum tells me that they sailed past Hugada in Egypt seven times They also didn't have any fresh food. They'd hoped that they would get fresh food in Yemen, but they'd just had a revolution there and there was no fresh vegetables. Yeah, but um, they made it. They got through the Suez Canal and they made it to Cyprus and turned out all right. (laughs) Growing up on a boat, I mean, there were lots of... There were opportunities to speak with other kids and to hang out with other boat children because you would often for safety reasons sail in a group so we did meet other kids but then at the same time we did spend long long periods without any other interaction I mean my mum always says that we had pretty vivid imaginations we were always making up all sorts of games and had all sorts of imaginary friends as well (laughs) Um, we properly moved on to land when I was eight into a house when I was eight. We both ended up actually breaking out in all these like crazy hives. And I think it was because we weren't used to being exposed to land and exposed to grass. She thought we were allergic to grass for a little while and that we were all going to have to move back onto the boat. But yeah, no, we missed being in the sea. And that's why we enjoyed so much being able to go back onto the boat for Christmas and for birthdays and for school holidays. We would always be going off on long kind of week and a half sailing adventures I wouldn't have wanted any other childhood, really. I think it was, yeah, it was a fantastic way of growing up, actually. Yolly says that although she was pretty obedient, her little sister was a bit more wild and unpredictable. She used to try to get off the boat, which is the last thing you want when you're in the middle of the ocean. Parenting is a tough balance of knowing when to step forward and when to hang back. Our next story is less about growing up and more about watching someone else grow up from as large a distance as possible. We'd follow them at a respectful distance if they were moving or stay with them if they were asleep or whatever. Quite often they would come to us because they either wanted shade, which is because our cars provided a nice shadow, so we'd have to keep on moving away from them. They got a bit disgruntled looks on their faces when they suddenly found this lovely bit of shade and were starting to settle down and then the shade moved. That's BBC Natural History producer Simon Blakeney and he had a very good reason to be hanging back. The animals he was watching could have knocked him for six with one swipe of their enormous paws. I'm Simon Blakeney. Um, I was the producer on the Lions episode of Dynasties. We did about 
430 filming days out there, um, following one group of lions in Kenya on the Masai Mara. One time I remember when I was in the spotter car with one of our young male lions, and Sophie was in another car quite a long way away, um, and I was on the radio to her talking, and I was sort of leaning out one side slightly to get a better signal on the, the small handheld radio we had. And the male lion had been on our right-hand side. Unbeknownst to me, I was leaning out the other side of the car, had got up and started walking towards the car. And he walked basically underneath me. <laughs> and he was he's huge. I mean, he was a big... He was almost full-grown by that point. And I didn't know he was coming. So suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, I saw this vast lion that I could have reached down and touched. Um, and I have to admit, I jumped out of my skin and there were a few expletives that came down the radio to Sophie. They're big, obviously, but when they're at a distance... They look like what they look like. But when they come close to you, you realise how big they are. I mean, and actually, the interesting thing about this, that line, that particular line, was he was probably two and a half when we started filming, and by this point, he was maybe three, three and a half. And um, he'd gone from being a sort of gangly teenager to, to suddenly start to fill out and being a proper lion. So it was quite a shock, not only getting him that close, but seeing how, how much bigger he'd got than when we'd started filming. And that was one of the lovely things about this project, was that we've really got to know these groups of animals, and so it was nice to be able to do that. Dynasties is a BBC series which charts the rises and falls of five animal families. And Simon was watching this pride, known as the Marsh Pride, for around a year and a half. Over that time, Simon watched the younger members of the pride grow up. He watched them learn to hunt, begin to assert themselves, to go from cuddly little cubs to the fearsome predators we all know. We've got two cousins in our films, Red and Tartu. They formed a really sort of really strong bond because that's what male lions have to do. If they want to go and take over a pride, it's much easier to do if they've got a, a partner. So they would fight, they'd roll around on the floor, but in a, well, I suppose, gentle way for them. But at the same time, if we'd been involved in any of it, it would have taken your head off. Huge, great paws slapping each other across the heads. They were just like playful kittens, but an awful lot bigger. <laughs> As they grow up, the play fighting that the sort of six, nine-month-old cubs will do is very different to the play fighting that two big, nearly full-grown males will do. They're learning to, well, learning about their own bodies, but also learning about where they fit in the pecking order. So we had one sequence, which is in the film, actually, which is uh, the same lion, same young male, jumping on the back of a hippo. Um, I suppose notionally to try and hunt it, but more of it was just sort of testing his strength and proving he was big. And uh, I mean, like adolescent men, like, like I'm sure I've done stupid things like that too. Um, he was just bouncing along this line, water splashing off his feet because he was going through a sort of wet, marshy patch. Um, and he just looked ridiculous. So the males, honestly, male lions are not are not the most um, overtly intelligent animals on earth. The females, as I do, the majority of the hunting, and they'd be stalking up really silently, absolutely low to the ground, incredibly stealthily approaching whatever the particular prey was. And you get a male bumbling in, great big mane, they're huge, I mean, much bigger than the females, bumbling in and you're thinking, what's going on, what's going on, looking around and, and all the prey on that bit of the plane would go flying. I have to admit, I don't understand why male lions get involved in hunts anything that's smaller than a buffalo, because all they do is mess it up. I mean, fully grown adult males and, and teenagers also will help. If they take something big like a buffalo or something, they can help to bring it down because they're physically so much stronger. But where it's more about stealth and less about strength for things like antelope and warthogs or whatever, they far more often would be a hindrance than a help. They are purely muscle and they're not there for their brains. The biggest thing that males provide is protection. If an unknown male comes in and finds a pride or a lioness with cubs, already, they'll almost definitely kill those cubs, or at the very least drive them off. If they're a bit older, they'll drive them away rather than kill them. So having a set of males that are your males means that you've got a, 
a source for sort of fathering cubs, obviously, but you've also got protection. And the biggest threat, arguably, on a day-to-day -day basis for lions is other lions, actually, because they're very territorial and they don't like intruders. They're stunning, they are powerful, they have incredibly complicated social lives. I would say they're definitely, without a doubt, my favourite animal now, having done what we did with them. There are lots of animals, particularly mammals, who go through a kind of adolescence. It's a transitional time when animals who are no longer really young start to get to grips with how to be an adult. When you look at the bravado of a strutting young male lion, the comparison to human teenagers is kind of irresistible. You can anthropomorphise these things quite a lot, I suppose, but in, in elephants you can probably get away with it at least. Elephants are particularly fascinating because their adolescence lines up pretty much with their teenage years, between around 12 and 20, just like us. It is so similar to humans, you know, their lifespan and their extended gestation and there's all sorts of similarities. This is Gus. OK, I'm Gus van Dijk. I'm currently working in the Kalahari. Gus knows all about elephant growing pains project. from the years he spent as the ecologist for Pilansberg National Park, around three hours northwest of Johannesburg in South Africa. In the early 90s, the elephants in his care started acting out in a big way. I guess if you go back earlier into the 90s, there were a few incidents recorded with young elephant bulls showing, let's say, an unnatural aggression. There was an incident where, for example, a tourist was killed, but in hindsight, that was perhaps the start of the problems. Gus and the other park staff started finding bodies. Dead rhinos. Not just dead, badly mutilated. These rhinos had just big holes, typically in the top of their shoulders and their neck, though, and that's not really typical for rhinos fighting. The trackers, they said, look, it looks like this is a result of a fight with an elephant. That's not entirely unheard of. Elephants and rhinos have been seen to clash at waterholes, and if they have a fight, invariably, the elephant's going to win. Then we found one or two more carcasses, and we said, OK, this is looking more and more like a problem, and then a few more. These young elephants, who by now were in the 15 to 18-year-old age class, it was these animals that were responsible for killing the rhinos. But what was interesting is that it was only elephants that were in must. Must. M-U-S-T-H. It's a condition unique to elephants, and it's where the males, starting in their teens or early 20s, experience a flood of reproductive hormones. Their whole attitude changes. They get a swagger. He makes himself look really tall. They also dribble a strong-smelling liquid from the temporal glands, the ones on the side of their head. So you've got this animal that's just oozing testosterone. And elephants in this condition are known to be extremely dangerous because they've got this heightened, aggressive behaviour, really. But young elephants don't get to stay in must very long. So in normally structured elephant populations, when a young bull comes into must, he immediately encounters a bigger bull. The young bull immediately drops out of must because he's never going to be able to stand up to this guy. And so as he gets older and older, his must periods actually last longer and longer. So that by the time he's in his early 40s, he's been introduced to must slowly over the period of two decades. But these weren't mature 40-year-old bulls. These were teen elephants, 15, 18 years old. So why were they in must? Now, it's quite important to go back to the late 1970s, early 1980s, and look at how the, the Pilonsberg elephant population was re-established. 
When Pilansberg was first created, back in the late 70s, it was seeded with animals from other parks around the country. The elephants came from Kruger, around 500 kilometres to the east. They took females and babies, but no adult males. Big bull elephants were simply too hard to transport. What became very evident to us in Pilansberg was that these youngsters were coming into must in their late teens and then staying in must for months on end. With no big adult males around, the Pilonsberg teenagers had no one to push them out of must. And these teens, at the mercy of a huge rush of testosterone that they were still too young to know what to do with, they went off the rails. The final figure was over 50 rhinos that had been killed by elephants. And so we embarked on, on a scientific approach to say, OK, well, can we manipulate must? Either we need to artificially control the testosterone in these animals through hormone injections or implants or something, or we need to castrate these animals, or we need to go back to basics and understand their behavior. And, and there's got to be a natural solution to this problem. The best way would be to try and bring in big bull elephants that have grown up with must behavior normally, and so they can control themselves, and hopefully they can control must as well. They went back to Kruger. And between them, they developed a way to catch and transport big bull elephants. They caught six, brought them back to Pillensburg, and released them. And it was instantaneous, the response. So elephants that were in Pillensburg that were in must, at the time we released those big bulls, dropped out of must instantly, as in within hours. And the big bulls didn't come in and... and, and uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say it didn't, <laughs> didn't beat up on these youngsters. A big bull elephant just towers over a 20-year-old elephant and it, he would have just had to have shaken his head a few times and that bull would have immediately just become quite submissive. I don't think they've lost another rhino since and this is you know, some 20 years later. There's actually an American psychology textbook that used this story as an analogy, just to remind us of the importance of stable societies and the value and importance of a father figure, you, you, you can't necessarily say elephants equal humans, but you can say, well, look at what happens when the social system is disrupted. And is there lessons we can learn as humans? I, I certainly think that young males that are get into these gangs and that they haven't had a, a role model, a template of good social behaviour. I, I just think this elephant incident was a, a fantastic lesson on that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is the BBC Earth podcast, where we're telling stories from the natural world about growing up. When I was little, I used to fantasise about being a caterpillar. We did a project on them at school, and in between learning how to spell chrysalis and metamorphosis, I imagined how glorious it would be to wrap myself up in a cosy silken duvet, sleep for a couple of weeks, and emerge a new and more fabulous version of myself. When I grew up, I found out that the process is infinitely more gruesome and more wonderful than I learned in primary school. Inside the cocoon, the caterpillar doesn't just grow wings. It essentially dissolves itself in its own digestive juices, the body, legs, brain, organs and everything, leaving a kind of protein-rich gunge with a few cells floating inside. The gunge reforms itself into a butterfly. I'm not so sure I still want to trade places with a caterpillar. But caterpillars into butterflies is by no means the weirdest way of growing up. Nature has some pretty strange tricks up her sleeve. Jellyfish have the weirdest life cycle you can imagine. The jellyfish that we recognize, which we call the Medusa stage, you know, Medusa like the goddess with the crazy hair, they have eggs and sperm, there's males and females, but when they have babies, they don't grow up to look like jellyfish. There's a little larva stage called a planula larva. These strange little sort of cigar-shaped little creatures, they sort of spiral their way through the water and their whole mission is to find a landing place. They attach to the rock and then they, or shell or whatever they land on and um, they metamorphose into a polyp like little tiny sea anemones. These little polyps grow into these colonies and they just keep growing and growing and growing, or well, cloning and cloning and cloning. And they can cover, I mean, you wouldn't believe, like they can cover an entire dock. You know, you come back after a few days and you're like, oh my God, look at them all, you know. Some other types of polyps can form these huge bushes, you know, like shrubs. And then when the conditions are right, they bloom in vast numbers, uh, like flowers in a garden, and bud off baby jellyfish. And that's where we see these massive numbers of jellyfish sometimes that you just look at it and you go, oh my God, where did they all come from? I'm Dr. Lisa Ann Gershwin, and I'm the director of the Australian Marine Stinger Advisory Services and also a co-creator of the Jellyfish app. You might have guessed by now, but I'm a jellyfish researcher. <laughs>
Of all of the weird, weird things that jellyfish do, the coolest one has got to be Turritopsis, the immortal jellyfish. The jellyfish itself, the medusa, when it dies, it falls to the bottom and it begins to decay, just like any other dead thing, normal process. Uh, but then something amazing happens. The cells re-aggregate not into a new medusa, but into polyps. And it, this is just unbelievable. It skips to the alternate part of its life cycle, but in this case, the earlier life stage. The immortal jellyfish can do something we thought was pure science fiction. It survives death. Like a phoenix, from the remains of a dead medusa rises a brand new baby polyp. It's been nicknamed the Benjamin Button of the ocean. Yeah, so it's not quite Benjamin Button, because with Benjamin Button, this one organism, that is Benjamin, um, actually became younger and younger and younger. This would be as if old man Benjamin lost a finger and the finger grew a new young Benjamin. And people would go, wait a minute, how did he do that? <laughs> I got to tell you, it blows, like everybody working in the jellyfish world, we all went, what? You know, like it, this was a real mind blower for all of us. And I still think it's one of the most amazing discoveries of our time. And I'm not limiting that to just jellyfish discoveries. I mean, discoveries full stop. It's now been found in, I think we're up to about four or five species that it's been found in. In 2011, in China, a marine biology student called Jinru He was keeping a different kind of jellyfish, a moon jellyfish, in a tank. When it died, he didn't throw the body away. He kept it in another tank and watched and waited. Sure enough, the miracle happened. Three months later, a new tiny polyp was growing from the top of the dead moon jelly. I actually haven't heard that story, but I am familiar with that concept. Let me tell you how many things I've kept hoping for something to happen. <laughs> the thing is, you never know what's going to happen. Unfortunately, more often than not, when you keep a dead jellyfish, the only thing that happens is it smells really bad. <laughs> Turritopsis, it's in the class Hydrozoa. Well, Aurelia, the moon jelly, is in the class Scyphozoa. So these are as different from each other as mammals are from frogs. That's how different Turritopsis is from moon jellies. And yet they're still doing the same thing. I think people have always wondered what would it be like to not die? What would it be like to be immortal? Philosophers have written about it, poets. You know, since the beginning of time, we've been looking for a way to beat death, right? Well, who could have imagined that it would be a lowly jellyfish that would hold the secret to immortality? But it does. Sadly, I really can't see any genetic or developmental link between how jellyfish do their whole immortal thing and our own quest to be able to become immortal. That's not to say that something can't be spliced in genetically. Um, I mean, you know, they do some amazing splicings of things these days. There's cats that glow in the dark so you don't trip over them at night. Come on, you know. 
<laughs> like, if, you know, if they can make like a glow-in-the-dark cat, uh, you know, they can probably make anything. Some say that childhood is the best time of your life, the wonder years, a time to be cherished. Some say that the only good thing about childhood is that sooner or later it ends. But before you think we humans have it hard, allow me to present to you, for no real reason, the life cycle of the Lancet liver fluke. The adult, a kind of flattish, shortish, worm-like creature, lives out its life as a parasite inside the liver of a cow. Flukes mate and lay eggs, but the eggs don't stay in the cow. They're transported out in the faeces. If the eggs are lucky, a snail comes along and eats the cow poo, taking in the eggs at the same time. When the eggs reach the intestine of the snail, they hatch into a kind of mouthless larvae, which burrow into the digestive glands and start cloning themselves like crazy. When there's enough of them, they're ejected out of the snail's respiratory tract in the form of a ball of slime. And the slime is eaten by ants. The little flukes make their way into the ant's brain, where they wait. And as night falls, the flukes in the brain of the ant make it go mad. It climbs a nearby blade of grass and then cramps up at the top, remaining there until morning. Where, if they're lucky, they'll be eaten again by another cow. Where the little flukes can finally complete their journey into adulthood and start the whole process all over again. Which kind of puts your embarrassing teenage antics into perspective. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight and I hope you'll come back again next week when we're looking at rituals in the animal kingdom. Some of the stories you heard in this podcast came from the storytellers and makers of BBC Earth's latest landmark programme, Dynasties. Narrated by Sir David Attenborough, we follow the lives of five extraordinary animals, each in a heroic struggle against rivals and against the forces of nature, fighting for their own survival and for the future of their dynasties. Visit bbcearth.com forward slash dynasties for more information on when you can catch the series in your country.